Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. This season, our guests have mastered the skills for understanding how we experience food. We're asking how they use this insight to both create individual food products and adjust diets. And we're considering how that knowledge can be applied in the healthcare sector, where many patient health goals intersect with diet. Last episode, we discussed strategies to individually improve our sensory analysis and nudge our palates to be more flexible. This episode, we're talking about the cooking skills to support our food exploration. Our guests today join us from the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences at the University of Vermont, or UVM. They're working on curriculum models that integrate nutrition, sensory analysis, and basic concepts in meal preparation. Hi, my name is Amy Trubeck, and I am a professor and chair of the Nutrition and Food Sciences Department at the University of Vermont. I have been involved with a multi-year project to develop a curriculum and a pedagogy to promote people's empowerment in doing everyday meal preparation. And I also have some background in uh, sensory analysis and sensory evaluation. I'm John Corliss. I'm a PhD student in the food systems program here at UVM. And um, my background is in culinary arts. I was a chef for about 10 years. And now I am a teaching assistant in the basic concepts of food course here at UVM. Hi, my name is Emily Barber. I am the foods lab manager in the nutrition and food sciences department at UVM. So I manage the, the teaching kitchen um, and help teach some of these classes. This episode will be focused on cooking skills. But as we've discussed before on the podcast, preparing your own food isn't always the answer to diet-related health needs. Medically tailored meals, for example, exist to help in situations when it isn't reasonable for a patient to undertake cooking. The same with some options in home and community-based services. These are particular examples. But we also don't want to fixate on the allure of the homemade meal to the point where it doesn't fit in with people's actual lives or goals. One thing that comes to mind for me in this discussion is that in a range of issues related to food systems and food studies, there's a lot of romanticization that goes on of the way things used to be. And something that we're dealing with is whether or not those realities ever existed um, when we're talking about an ideal like farm system or whether we're romanticizing the home cook in this homesteader lifestyle. Okay, it's possible that Vermont's entire plan for maintaining population revolves around romanticizing a homesteader lifestyle. We need to accept that whatever whatever cooking is, it shall never again be, and maybe never again should be, the obligation of a particular person because of their gender or their status in society. And therefore, we're going to have to come up with new ways of figuring out the relationship that an individual American in our society, in their quest every day to feed themselves, what is the relationship between that which they have control over and they do themselves versus when they ask other people to do it for them and how all that integrates with some kind of larger parameters about nutritional and environmental health. Not to put too fine a point on it, but my mother had two pieces of career advice for me. First was, whatever salary you're offered, ask for 20% more. But second was, don't be the woman who bakes muffins for the office. It's setting coworkers up to think that's your primary skill set and, worse, that you're eager to take on all sorts of extracurricular work you aren't being compensated for. And mind you, this was advice from someone who became a school librarian so she could have summers to dedicate to gardening and food preparation. 
In college, I happened to intern at Senator Leahy's Montpelier office, where the women running it had catering businesses on the side, and I learned that, sure, you don't want to bring muffins to the office, but if you bring elaborate experimental pastries and the occasional wedding cake, then you're just showing off your potential to dominate not one, but two professions. I gave everyone's desktop candy bowl an upgrade to homemade caramels and never looked back. My 2022 goals include perfecting my chocolate and robing techniques for artisan candy bars. I'm very conflicted on the whole romanticizing home cooking topic. There's no denying that having basic skills in the kitchen allows for greater control over your food destiny, including over ingredients, flavor, and cost. That's what we're going for here. Amy's curriculum is thoughtful about the context it sets for any cooking we might need to learn. So we have this course, the basic concepts of food, and also our other courses, sustainable cooking, cooking for health, follow the organization of sequences of labs and in-person experiential learning that we explain or analyze under the concept of food agency. And this is a set of principles that have been developed over a, a long period of research of types of actions and knowledge that give people more self-efficacy and also help them navigate structural barriers to everyday meal preparation. So the principles of food agency that are integrated into all of our courses are related to organization and planning, uh, sensory evaluation, and basic culinary skills. These classes combine different modules, including mastering both theoretical concepts and working with actual ingredients in the labs that you heard Emily mention in the introductions. This is a podcast. Our medium is more suited to the conceptual part of the coursework than the demonstration of, say, knife skills. Plus, my knife skills are solidly mediocre. I make a mockery of fine dice every time. That may not be the most important element anyway. One of the things the students reflect on that they think helped them the most in their own cooking, usually at the end of the semester, and they say they want to carry forward is kind of the organizational piece that we focus on. Organization makes cooking less frustrating. Not realizing halfway through that you're missing a key ingredient or didn't notice your dough needs to rise overnight before the final step. Organization means you've been thoughtful about what food you want to eat, not impulse buying the first thing that catches your eye. If the social element of eating is important to you, organization may include scheduling who will be at the table. Crucially, Organization is linked to how much time cooking requires. Not a get-your-dish-done-before-the-buzzer-on-great-British-bake-off time, although that too, but a more basic point. If cooking is a new skill for you, then presumably your days were already filled with non-cooking activities, and this cooking bit needs to be added somewhere. That means beginning cooks invariably face time pressure to some degree. Understanding your cooking tasks and getting through them efficiently mitigates that pressure. Thinking about organizing your face space physically um, and having your ingredients prepped and ready. Um, you don't have to go crazy with all the tiny little bowls, but making sure that you have everything you need and kind of know your plan of attack. And then speaking about the sequencing, especially backwards sequencing, like where you read through the whole recipe and understand the whole process of it and are able to figure out the steps that you need to take, even if that's reorganizing it based on the way the recipe has it. Maybe you group some Uh, tasks together to save time, like all the prep, chopping, all that kind of stuff, and knowing how to organize it so that you're finishing when you want to. I think students reflect on that a lot as something that it seems like a more of an investment in time at first when you start learning how to do it, but it will save you time um, at the end of the day. 
part of organizing is finding and thinking through recipes. There's the backward sequencing that Emily talked about, but also the challenge of trusting the underlying recipe will produce the results you want. The internet is a double-edged sword in recipe research. On the one hand, there are a lot of recipes out there freely available to try. On the other hand, while posting recipes is easy, posting a reliable recipe is hard. It involves testing, a knack for clear instruction, and being able to accommodate different skill levels, or at least flag when something is advanced. It gets even trickier if we add in a need for diet modifications that alter the original recipe. Basic culinary skills include information literacy around choosing recipes and comfort in going off book, cooking without a written guide for every step. A lot of that comes from practice, and practice is slightly different from simple repetition. It involves paying attention to what you're doing. Like Amy described at the beginning and how she structures the classes, the coursework combines repeated practice with analysis, leading up to final projects that bring everything together for the students. Amy was talking about how we really focus on repetition and building skills. And so by the time they've reached this final project, their time in the lab has been reinforcing not necessarily skills, but how to think about and apply those skills so that their own food agency grows and they understand that even if a recipe tells you to cut a vegetable a certain way, you might not want to do that for a number of reasons, whether it be texture, flavor, time considerations, anything like that. So our real goal here is complementing the knowledge they have from their nutrition programs and giving them the applicable skills to actually get in the kitchen and cook food and um, bring those two sets of skills together. As the reliable recipe skill gets developed, there's some risk of wasted ingredients and dishes your family doesn't want to eat. This risk can be a barrier when ingredients tax a household's food budget or time for cooking is especially tight. Learning in classes with an instructor's guidance, or at least having an opportunity to sample food before taking the recipe home, can reduce this barrier. The UVM students are both experiencing that themselves and learning to guide others in the future. Providing high-quality ingredients for free, in abundance, can also help by creating a margin of error. For this reason, some healthcare practices use produce prescriptions to focus on the time it takes to transition to a new diet. While other food supports might take care of basic dietary needs in the long term, patients require that extra margin during the transition to find new ways of eating and cooking. We've covered some core skills here. The conceptual framework of food agency, organizing for a better kitchen experience and more manageable way to work cooking into weekly routines, and building comfort with recipes. Recipe skills include identifying reliable sources, matching cooking skill levels, backward sequencing, and beginning to modify recipes for dietary and flavor preferences. That last part can be as detailed or as basic as you want. Google famously worked with the Culinary Institute of America to develop an entire training program around optimizing vegetable flavor for a healthy diet. And that was for chefs who already had professional training and years of work experience. It's like a PhD in tasty vegetables. We're taking only a few steps down that road today. Sensory analysis is the first step. We have kind of a multi-step process by which we try to enhance a young person's understanding of what it means to do sensory evaluation of food. So the first thing you have to do is you actually have to get a student to realize that there is such a thing as a sensory evaluation of food. We are not a culture in particular, that spends a lot of time valorizing 
the talking about the taste of food while you're eating it. So one of the first things we do is we get students to try to identify for themselves their own sensory preferences, which they, they may not realize that they have. They may just think this is just the way the world is, or this is just the way I am. And then we increasingly try to give them tools so that they can step aside from the sort of preference structure that they come into the lab with and become increasingly analytic and hopefully open-minded about sensory experiences that they may have, for example, never had before. We find that students don't understand the difference between different types of sensory experiences until you ask them to differentiate them. So to differentiate taste from flavor and to uh, differentiate texture from mouthfeel and then to be able to create the relationship between all of those and realize that that's all of that makes the sensory experience and all of that helps de um, determine what they understand as sensory preference. These exercises are taking a subset of the senses we talked about in earlier episodes using slightly different vocabulary. In this context, flavor is when you layer aroma into what the taste buds experience. Like gingerbread is a sweet, but with strong aromatics all the way up to our truffle conversation with Rowan, where it's unclear what exists besides aroma. Mouthfeel is how something coats the mouth, like the difference between skim milk and cream that we discussed with Roy, while texture is experienced when you're also chewing, like the sugar crystals crunching in the cookie dough that we covered with Dale. Texture has better sound effects than mouthfeel. The other elements of flavor perception that we've considered in earlier episodes also come into play, although sometimes through different channels in the classroom. For example, students work on hypothetical scenarios for meal design. We have them plan a meal based on a certain set of scenarios. They do a little research and pick a scenario that we give them with a few different constraints. So maybe it's a group of roommates who have different likes and dislikes and a couple different allergies or dietary needs. Or maybe it's a family on a specific budget who wants to get vegetables but only has access through different means. These get to the context element of food. And it's easy for students to make the translation to how they see these theoretical elements playing out in their own experience. For example, in considering factors that influence cooking or eating out. Yeah, this balance between cooking for yourself and eating out is something our students talk about a lot too within the class. And frame kind of is something, you know, often they want to cook for themselves more because of money, because of health, um, just because of enjoying the process, but then also having time constraints. Students have spoken about food being social and they maybe don't have the space to make a meal for a big group of friends. So they go out and like going out to a meal is a, a big social part of their everyday life. A complicating factor in this learning approach is that the students are both learning how to understand their own perception of food and also learning how to work with other people on their perceptions. That's a double challenge. However, the instructors help this process by coaching students as they apply culinary skills to match foods to their own preference and also apply critical analysis to what that might mean for others. One of the first assignments we do now is having them list three foods they like and three foods they don't like and describing those. And then we go on to discuss what those specific descriptions that they came up with were and how they fit into kind of their overall likes and dislikes and how they can be, how they can think about different cooking methods or those kinds of things to change and enjoy those ingredients maybe, or to just try new, new ways of combining things. 
I think that texture is a great place to discuss this because it is true that when we're thinking about analysis, what we what we see a lot is that students just don't have a background because, as Amy said, people don't think about analyzing what they're tasting. But we do find that students have really strong opinions about textures. That's something that is familiar to us and we can easily identify and discuss. It's good that texture is so easily grasped since there are a lot of cooking techniques we can connect to it. Most home cooks don't really understand the relationship between time and temperature. And that really rules so much of what happens in cooking and how you get or don't get the result you want. So one thing that uh, I have a colleague who's working with people in Baltimore who have type two diabetes. And one of the things she did some uh, informational or sort of interviewing of a group of women who are going to be taking a cooking class with her based on food agency. And one of the things that she realized was a big issue in terms of these women not being able to get what they wanted in terms of texture and flavor if they were going to not fry food, which is what they really were used to doing, was they didn't realize that you could bake things in the oven at over 350 degrees and that a higher temperature would create a better texture of things like vegetables and also meats. So she was really going to be focusing on like 450, 400 to 450 degree roasting as a way of trying to sub out frying in oil and roasting without as much oil. This next example gets to mouthfeel, the complement to texture and visual cues. You know, we often will put out all of the dishes and have students look at the different, what all the different groups made. And they can even just at first see the differences in appearances. And we ask them about what are you seeing? You're seeing maybe this tomato sauce is darker and thicker. Why do you think that is? Can you describe how you prepared it? I'm guessing that if they all added the same amount of tomato paste, then the difference is down to heat and time spent simmering, and that the differences in thickness also connect to differences in the flavor. Here's one final example with that taste plus aromatics combination. If someone says they don't like onions because they're pungent, we say, well, if we show you how to caramelize an onion slowly and tease out the sweetness of that onion, then, you know, we have a totally different thing. And is it still true that you don't like onions? So our goal is sort of to give them the skills to not only identify what they like and don't like, but also to actualize that and arrive at that place from a culinary perspective. Caramelizing onions is scientifically complex and connects two browning reactions in cooking. True caramelization, which happens with sugars alone, and the Maillard reaction, which requires carbohydrates interacting with amino acids. Managing browning reactions precisely would involve understanding the molecules available to react, in some cases adjusting surface area, and then manipulating temperature, moisture content, and time. It's a lot simpler to begin with the sensory analysis around taking the bite out of onions, or to observe the difference extra heat makes to tomato sauce. And if you brown tomato paste before combining with other ingredients for a sauce, the difference is more pronounced. Sensory observations can narrow down the part of culinary knowledge you're after and lead to a few principles that are easily cross-applied to other situations. We talked about this cross-application of core skills a bit in the last episode. The book and television series Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by chef Samin Nosrat provides one of those basic frameworks for core concepts in cooking if you want to learn more. The students for whom Amy is designing a curriculum are both undergraduates and master's level students interested in becoming a registered dietitian. In a previous episode, Leah Pryor spoke about working with medical professionals at multiple levels of education, including continuing education for current practitioners. These are advanced courses. 
At the same time, part of what we're discussing in sensory analysis is filling what are essentially cultural gaps, skills that some people may be raised doing and others have to consciously learn later in life. That begs the question, why not start the food education sooner? The short answer is that we do. Back in season three of this podcast, we discussed that idea in our episode on children and healthy eating. Here's a clip of Coy Boynton speaking about farm-to-school work with the organization Healthy Roots. Part of our food education work, we really focus on working with students and either bringing them out to their gardens or out onto farms so that they have a better understanding of where their food does come from and what whole foods are. And we find that when either a kid is growing food in their garden and bringing that into the school and cooking with it, or they have been a part of harvesting food from the farm that they've then find in their cafeteria, they're more likely to try that food and enjoy that food because they've been part of the process and they've had connection with it. Um, So it's really fun to see that. Uh, And it exposes them to what whole foods are. We have a great story. Um, We do monthly taste tests at at the Swanton schools and um, our farm to school coordinator had brought in whole carrots and some of the kids had never seen whole carrots before. They had seen the baby carrots or sliced carrots um, from the freezer section. And they were so excited to have a whole carrot that just the act of giving them a carrot and letting them take it back to their classroom was huge for them. Uh, So those are some of the things we see in the farm to school world and it's amazing. I'll link that episode and some more information in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. This season, we're focused further downstream on how health professionals are incorporating food knowledge into their practice. Something we'll get into more on the next episode of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. I don't think they would even know who Martha Stewart is, but John, tell me I'm wrong. They might be familiar because I think she hangs out with Snoop Dogg sometimes now. This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.